walking around and he's getting pretty steady on his feet now, but it's taken a wee while for him to get steady. And as he is growing and maturing as a baby, he is getting more and more steady on his feet. And so spiritual maturity looks like steadiness. And I, I think if we were to think of two things that could stop us from maturing in Christ, uh, one of those things would be thinking that we've already arrived. That's, that's going to be a, a real stop to us maturing, maturing in Christ. The other thing would be thinking that failure is fatal. Failure is not fatal. In fact, they, they are, uh, people who, who do a lot of study of um, different generations, they reckon that the millennial generation uh, has this fear, a constant fear of failure, that they feel very deeply that failure is fatal. But we need to understand the, the only way to grow is to journey through failure. That is the only way to grow. Zeke didn't, just the first time that he tried to stand up and fall over, didn't just give up trying to walk. Failure is not fatal. And in fact, failure is an important part of growing and maturing. And, and so, we're, um, so it's no, I think it's just brilliant that this chapter starts with this heading, a closing appeal for steady, steadfastness and unity. I didn't know this last week when I, when I felt like God saying to me, steadiness, but this one opens up a closing appeal for steadfastness and unity. So this word steadfastness, we, we have these ideas of being unwavering, uh, patient endurance, steadiness, being unshaken, strong, and supporting. Uh, one of the meanings is being well-seated, and last week I talked about being planted, having deep roots, helps us to be steady, um, but it's to be uh, solidly based Steadfast and firm, it's morally fixed, it's firm in purpose and in mind, it's well stationed, securely positioned, not given to the fluctuation or moving off course. So listen to this, spiritual maturity has nothing to do with gifted, giftedness or talent. It has nothing to do with courage or boldness. Remember, the gifts are free, but unity and maturity is costly. Unity and maturity are costly. Uh, in Romans 12, Paul calls us to be people who offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. And I, I think when we think about, um, you, know, you know, Hebrews talks about Jesus being the one-time sacrifice for all sin. Uh, but then Paul also reminds us that we are also called to live sacrificial lives. So Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He died as an example for us to follow. We follow him in laying down our lives for the benefit of others. And in that, we find true life. So let's, um, let, let's dive in, eh? We're doing okay? All right, so um, but just before we start with that, I, I want to have a look at 1 Corinthians 3 really quickly because I think it ties up um, really well. We're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians 3 alongside and Romans 12 alongside uh, this chapter this morning. So Romans 3, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3 says this. This is really interesting. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Now, look where Paul goes when he's describing what worldly looks like. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? That's interesting, eh? 
are you not acting like mere humans? See, this kind of maturity and unity that Paul and Jesus is calling us up into is actually supernatural. It's not natural to the human condition to pursue unity with others. It's only through the Spirit of God that we can grow up into the image and likeness of God. See, in um, Acts, I find it really interesting that we see uh, in Acts uh, chapter 1, uh, it says that, uh, that all of the disciples were together in one place. So they're, they're, they're gathered in Jerusalem, they're waiting in the upper room, they're waiting for something, they don't know what it is, but Jesus said, wait there, because I will clothe you with power. Uh, but they're waiting, and it says that they were all together in one place, so geographically all together in one place. This morning, we are all geographically together in one place. That is not unity. Then in, in Acts 2, it then says that all of the disciples are together in one heart and one mind. That is unity. They're together in one heart and one mind. What's the difference? The difference is they have now been clothed with power. They have now received the Holy Spirit. There is something about unity and maturity that we cannot achieve outside of a work of the Spirit. It is only through the Spirit of God that we are actually able to be closer together in unity than if we would even try to be unified in our own effort. And so this, this idea of unity of mind, unity of heart and unity of mind, I, I, I often, when I first sort of read that, I would think of uh, everyone agreeing, that if we have unity of mind, then everyone must, be, must have been agreeing. Uh, you only have to read the book of Acts to realize that they weren't always agreeing. So, so it's not that. It's not that everyone had exactly the same theological ideas and they were all agreeing on the same thing. So this unity of mind, Paul has already told us what it is in chapter 2. See, Paul has already told us how to have the mind of Christ. He says, in all of your relationships, have the mind of Christ, who did not see being like God as something to grasp. So having unity of mind is actually when we all decide together through a work of the Spirit to lay down power, lay down the need to be right, serve one another in humility and live sacrificially towards one another. In this way, we will show the world what Jesus is like and give glory to God. See, it's that poem in Philippians 2. Paul is bringing us back to that again. So Paul continues in, in Corinthians 3. He says this. Uh, in verse 16, he continues and says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. See, whenever we tear one another down, we are destroying the very temple of God. When we gossip, when we scapegoat one another, when we judge when we're being critical of one another, when we bring negativity and a critical attitude and suspicion, we are actually tearing down the very temple of God. See, Paul is, is trying to help us realize that we are one body. During prayer this morning, uh, and as she often does, prophesies as she prays, um, but she started to, to say, we are not a dismembered body. We are not a hand over there and a finger over there. We, we are not the result of a grenade exploding and, a, and we've all blown ourselves apart. 
We, we are one body, uni, unified, united together. We are the body of Christ. And so here's the point. When I, when, when I hurt my finger, I, I have actually hurt my whole body. And so when we think about us as the body of Christ, when we tear down someone, or maybe we tear down another church, or we tear down uh, uh, you know, other, other believers, we are actually tearing down our own selves. We are destroying, destroying ourselves when we tear down one another. And so this is why Paul continually is hitting on this idea of unity and maturity. He is, he's hitting on this all of the time, because he's saying we're actually destroying ourselves. I saw a quote recently where someone said that uh, the Christian army is the only army that shoots their wounded. <coughs> that must not be so. And we see that all the time, you know, when someone has a fall from grace, when they have a moral failure. You know, do we gather around them and say, hey, how are you doing? Or do you say, oh, they must have never been a believer anyway. You know, we, we can, it's so quick to judge them, but actually when someone has a moral, moral failure, I can guarantee you that they are hurting deep inside. And are we going to be the body that gathers them up and loves them, restores them? Francis Chan, he made this comment. He said, in God's list of things that he hates in Proverbs 6, he places greatest emphasis on one who sows, sows discord among brothers or a person who stirs up conflict in the community. He calls it a, an abomination. That should stop us dead in our tracks. We should be examining our own life right now to see if we are guilty of something that the Almighty God hates so much. So this, this one thing, God really, when there's disunity in a community, when people are pulling one another down, we are actually working against God himself. So Philippians 4, let's head into it. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who, whose names are in the book of, book of life. So, so uh, Paul was, is, is actually addressing an issue in the church in, in Philippi, and he's saying, Judea and, and, and Syntyche, these two are in disagreement. There's disunity among these two. And this isn't just uh, uh, you know, people who have just arrived in the church or anything. These are people who, women who was part of planting the church, a part of setting up the church. It, it would be like uh, Annette and Sarah, you know, potentially, ha having a conflict that's actually affecting our whole community. And Paul is writing to them, to, and, and he's saying, uh, he's saying my true companions, would you help these women? Would you help these women to, to be of the same mind? And we know that being of the same mind doesn't mean that he's calling them to agree, but he's calling them to lay down their power, to lay down their need to be right. He's calling them to, to actually serve one another with humility and sacrificial love. That's what he's calling them to when he says be of the same mind. But I think there's a really, um, a really interesting thought here 
that, um, where do I want to go? Yeah, so, so uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, in chapter 12, he encourages us with this. He, he says, uh, pursue peace with all people. Looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up to cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Listen, the, the devil is not scared of a big church. He's scared of a unified church. And, and I, I would suggest that there isn't a, a letter written by Paul that does not address unity. He addresses it all the time because he knows how powerful a unified church could be. See, I'd like to suggest that unity is not how we achieve the goal, but actually unity is the goal. See, the, the point is this, is as we, if we are looking at each other to try and be unified, we are actually acting like mere humans. But if we, but if we look at Christ, we will become like him. And as we become like him, we become closer together than if we ever tried to be unified. Paul makes this appeal to a true companion. He, he says, if there is a true companion here, could you help these women? So Paul is looking for a companion, someone who can help. And I think this idea of companions is really interesting, because who knows that, that when we're offended, we look for companions, eh? We look for companions. We look for people who are going to agree with our offense. We, we try and gather up people who, so we can build a case. And if we can get people on our side, then we can build a case. Uh, um, and so I'm trying to think where this goes. I'm just, I can't remember if I've really looked at a word, but there's a word that basically means uh, and to not want to litigate. It's one of the words we've already looked at, and I can't remember. I'm, I'm getting a bit lost um, track of which word I'm thinking about, but anyway. Um, so anyway, so sometimes when we are offended, we, we try and gather people around to build a case so that we can litigate against other people. And so the question is here, Paul says, you need a true companion of the Lord who will help bring you together, but are we looking for a companion of the Lord or are we looking for a companion of offense? I would like to suggest that our natural, our mere human Heart, we look for a companion of offense on the phone. Hey, did you hear this person say that? Hey, have they offended you as well? We're looking for companions of offense. But actually, Paul says a true companion of the Lord will be one who will go in and, and help them to actually lay down their power, lay down their rights so that they can be united together again. So Paul goes on to say this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Um, Spurgeon, when commenting on this passage, he said, he said this, I, I'm glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. So that's, that's a good one, eh? When someone comes to us with an offense, ah, I don't want to know the details. They're irrelevant. We know that we're starting to become a companion of offense when we're actually trying to fish for the details. No, I don't even know the details. My heart is just that you two would be united. 
He goes on to say, but as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is cure for all discord. See, Paul is not actually suggesting that we rejoice. Isn't it a beautiful thing that, that God actually makes delight a duty? He's, he's de, you know, rejoice in the Lord. This is not a suggestion. He's actually giving us this command to actually find joy in the Lord. And, and so this, this word joy, it, um, or sorry, the word rejoice, it means to cause joy to. So in other words, it's to experience joy by intentionally choosing to delight in God. This, and so the means and the end align here. That actually we, we engage with joy, we experience joy when we choose joy. When we choose to delight ourselves in God, we actually, uh, we actually experience this joy. I think it's really cool that, that this is a command. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a command that we actually delight in God. I don't know about you, but I'm like super glad that seriousness is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Anyone else? <laughs> seriousness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is to experience this joy that He has given us. I, I've been watching um, the Chosen series. Has anyone else been watching that? I, I love that we see in it the humanness of Jesus, his delight and his joy, his, his playfulness, his sense of humor. I, I love how he, he's just like, the way that he interacts with his disciples, he's teasing them and having fun with them and enjoying being with them. Like this is the Jesus that we get to be with, like this is, I, I just love that picture, I think we need a, a, a better picture of that. H have you ever laughed in faith? I was having a real down day once, uh, I was just, I was in my car and I, I can't remember what had happened, something had happened, who knows that, like, that thing right then was massive, now I can't even remember what it was. Um, but I decided I needed joy and I needed to experience the, the joy of the Lord. So I just start, decided I was going to laugh in faith and just started to laugh. I was like, I, I, need, I need to choose joy in this moment. And it was a little bit weird, hey, driving in my car and just going, <laughs> but it started to lift my spirits, and I started to experience joy, and that thing that was consuming my mind now just drifted off. So we can actually choose joy in faith. He goes on to say, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness show off God's goodness. This word gentleness in the Greek is epikia, and it means softness, mildness, patience, yieldingness, gentleness, clemency, moderation, Oh, and, and this, is, this is where that word is. I hadn't got to it yet. It's an unwillingness to litigate or contend. 
Let your gentleness be shown off to all men. Don't be quick to litigate. Don't be quick to be contentious. See, this word, it describes the heart of a person who will let the Lord fight his battles. It describes a person who is really free to let go of his anxieties and all the things that cause us stress because he knows that the Lord will take up his cause. Listen to this in Romans 12. It says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Yeah, so if, as far as it depends on you. So make sure that at least on your side of the debate or the argument, you are living at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So last week we, we talked about this idea of spiritual immaturity looking like quite an intense sort of a life. So it's this sense that we, we always need to put everything right. Uh, we need to put everyone and everything in its right place. Uh, it's sometimes a sense that we, we like to live as the policeman, not just the postman. Have you ever had someone who's given you a prophetic word and then tried to police you into doing it? We, we are postmen, not policemen when it comes to prophecy. And lots of things. We're, we're our, 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 our role is not actually to police the world. And, and so Paul was calling us and reminding us here that, that the, the Lord is near. He will put all things right. We know that when Jesus returns, he will put all things right. And that means that we can be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Yeah. Um, I did forget at the start, if you've got any questions, you can send them through, the number's up there. And uh, we, will, we will answer them soon. Right, so be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, and this is the key, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. See, gratitude is the attitude of prayer. Gratitude is the attitude of prayer. I have this little app on my phone, which is called the One Minute Pause, and it it goes off at 10 and 2 every day. And it reminds me every day to stop, to pause, to rest, and to give everything and everyone to God. And it just leads me through a little prayer. It says, just give everything and everyone to God. Hand those things over and I can carry on with my day. See, sometimes we can get so overwhelmed with what's going on around us that we forget to stop and just give those things to God. And sometimes you need an app to remind you. So I encourage you, it's a great app. It's called the One Minute Pause. So gratitude is the attitude of prayer. We stop and we give thanks to him for who he is, for what he's doing, and we give everything to him. And it goes on to say this, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I don't know if if you're getting this or not, but Paul is unpacking probably the greatest description of how we overcome anxiety. If you suffer from anxiety, just read this passage over and over. Paul was giving us a great description on how we overcome anxiety. Bill Johnson once said that you can't get the peace that passes understanding until you give up the right to understand. See, some things in life are just a mystery. I think that sometimes the need to have everything in its right place and everything in its proper theological box and the need to understand everything actually points to a lack of trust. See, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. Where we need to control everything about our lives and control everything around us. Actually, there's a peace that goes beyond what we can understand. Scripture talks about three types of peace. So there's peace from God. So Paul continually uses this, uh, usually in his introductions to his letters. Um, It reminds us that peace is actually a gift from God. The next one is peace with God. And so this describes the kind of relationship that we have when we're made right with God. We, We live at peace with him. And then there's this, this type of peace that Paul is talking about here, the peace of God. And so this is, um, this is a, a peace that is beyond our understanding, as Paul described. It's beyond our mind. It's beyond our power of thinking. Uh, you cannot wrap your mind around this type of peace. In fact, to try and wrap your mind around it will actually lead to unpeace, if that is even a word. But to try and figure this all out will actually lead to unpeace. Someone once described it like this. They said, what is God's peace? It is the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. So it isn't that it's senseless and therefore impossible to understand, but that it is beyond our ability to explain and understand. And so therefore, this type of peace that we're talking about here must be experienced. This type of peace that we're talking about must be experienced. We're talking about, again, last week we're talking about the difference between belief and knowing. It's not so much that I want to understand God, but that I want to gnosko Him. I want to know Him, to know Him and experience Him intimately. This is what Paul was talking about. See, this kind of peace, it's this kind of peace that guards our hearts and guards our minds. See, the steadfastness of a mature Christian is rooted in the ability to rest and experience the peace of God, not in our ability to get everything in its right order. So remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea that in the kingdom, that the means and the end must align. So sometimes we might say, I want peace. I want the peace of God. And in order for me to have the peace of God, I have to get everything in its right order. And if once everything's sorted out and I've controlled everything into its little tiny box, then I can finally have peace. 
No, no, this is a peace that transcends all of that. It's a peace that comes from God that you experience when you actually lay down your need to control all of the things in your life. When you lay down your need to understand and your need to put everything in its right place. When you lay that down, you receive this peace that can only come from God. See, some of us are fighting for peace instead of letting his peace fight for you. Listen, listen to this. When it comes back to prayer, gratitude as the attitude of prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for you. See, when we come to God with prayer, with an attitude of gratitude, what we are, what we are saying is, God, I trust you. But when we come with the attitude of, I need, God, I need you to sort all this stuff out. I need you, and if you're not going to sort it out, I'm going to sort it out. And even when I ask you to sort it out, I'm still going to try and sort it out. You know, but actually, it's this attitude of gratitude and saying, God, no matter what my circumstances are today, I choose to experience your peace. I choose to experience your joy. I choose to experience your love. And in that place, all of those things are laid aside and we're laying down that power that previously we we're trying to grasp for. In this, in this way, have the same mind as Christ. In this way. Is that good? Verse, verse eight. Then we'll get to some questions. So remember, Paul was just following on this thought. He's following on this thought. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I, 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 does that need any more explaining? Hey, like, what, whatever you put your focus on, you will become. Whatever you choose to meditate on matters. Who you behold, you become. This is what Paul is saying. Don't worry about sorting all the stuff out. Choose to meditate on him. And then the God of peace will be with you. See, this comes back to Romans 12, doesn't it? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Last couple of verses. Then we've got questions? No questions? Okay. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. 
Now this is, this is one of the verses that I mentioned at the start that gets taken out of context all the time. This is not a verse to use in some sort of triumphalist, super-Christian, you know, mentality. It's, it's actually saying that our strength in times of trial, in times of wealth, comes from Him. Listen, this is, this is important because what Paul was saying here is that he is, listen what he says, I've learned the secret. I, I have learned the secret to being content. I, I, I like, there are books that you could buy, there are whole courses you could buy about like the secret to happiness, you know, Paul was saying I've learned the secret. Whether in wealth or in lack. I have learnt to be content with what I've got. And then he goes on to say, and, but in all of this, I can only do it through Christ who gives me strength. Come on, who knows that sometimes when we have lots, you know, when we have plenty, I think there are the times we need Christ even more. When we have plenty of the times where we lean on our own understanding, when we lean on our own selves, where we go, actually, I've got lots. I don't, I'm not in need, so I don't need Christ. But Paul was saying whether I'm experiencing lack or I'm experiencing plenty, I have learnt that all of my strength comes from Christ. Remember, he's following on from the last chapter where he, he basically says, all of the good things I have done in my life are worthless. They are nothing to knowing Christ. That is my greatest pursuit, knowing him. See, contentment and peace have nothing to do with circumstances. Contentment and peace are a person. His name is Jesus. See, peace is not the absence of something. You know, sometimes in our pursuit of peace, when we're fighting for peace, we're trying to get things out of our life. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of tension. Peace is just the presence of Jesus. No matter what it is that you are walking through right now, whether you've got two kids or just had twins, hey. <laughs> peace is knowing Jesus in the midst of that. That's what peace is. And having that attitude of gratitude actually sets us up to be able to receive that peace that Jesus wants to give us. That's the key. Peace is the presence of Jesus. Any questions? Cool. All right.